Good morning, church family. It's so good to see you all here. And I'm so happy and privileged that I get to share with you this morning. I don't think that what I have to share is going to be some fantastic new revelation that you have never heard before, but I'm hoping that much like a gem which is rotated in the light, you will be able to see some deeper gleams, some brighter colors, a deeper appreciation for the truth which God's Word holds for us today, and hopefully a, a, a deeper understanding into the heart of God, who He is, and particularly how we can make Him feel at times. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you so much for the privilege of coming together here to worship you. We thank you for the music which we have heard. You have given us so many talents, and we return them to you. I pray, Lord, in a special way that you would be with us now as we open your word and as we seek to understand the truths that it contains. May our lives be challenged and changed and may we love you more, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I have wanted to preach this sermon for about six months. You might wonder why exactly six months or around six months, that's because six months ago I became a father. And uh, my wife and daughter were here for first service. Uh, Sophia is growing too quickly, everyone says it's quick. Yes, I agree with you, I know. Uh, Pastor, Pastor Page was talking to me in the background. He's like, next thing you know, you'll blink and there'll be 27. I said, don't say that. Please, not, not right now. But we're enjoying the six-month stage as we've been enjoying every stage. But I will share a little bit more about that later in the sermon. So the title for this morning is Powerless. Powerless. And let's begin first, not by talking about powerlessness, but about powerfulness. We know, I think I'm in a sense preaching to the choir here when I tell you that our God, the God of Scripture, is a very powerful God, right? Uh, Most of us would agree. I don't think we even need to turn to the passage, but if I was to start saying, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, okay? For most of us, especially if we were raised in Christian homes, in Adventist homes, from the time we were little, we read the books, we we saw the pictures that talked about how God created the world in seven days. He created everything that exists, that which we can see, even that which we cannot see, right? Because even though we can't see something, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So angels at times, people have seen them, At times, we don't see them. That doesn't mean they don't exist. Even if you were to get the greatest microscope or the greatest telescope, there are still boundaries to what we can see. And what lies beyond, we can be fairly certain that God knows what's there and that whatever is there, God is the one who put it there, that there is a reason behind that. God created the heavens and the earth, and He did so simply by speaking. I mean, that's quite powerful. Uh, just on a conceptual level, that God can make things not, you know, by using His hands, by having a factory, by building stuff. He just speaks, and it comes to be. We also have other texts in the Bible. For example, 
Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, another famous passage for us as Adventists. We don't have to turn there yet, but this is which commandment? The fourth commandment, okay? And so we are called to keep the Sabbath holy. Why? What's the reason given there? Because God created the world, right, in seven days. So we follow the same pattern that God did. He created, He worked the six days, He rested on the seventh day. We also are to work six days and rest and keep the seventh day holy. This is part. So His, the ability, or I shouldn't say the ability, but the reason God gives for why He is worthy of worship, at least one of them in Scripture, is because He is the omnipotent, all-powerful creator of the world, of the, and I mean world here in, in the biggest scope you can think of conceptually, the universe of which we are a part. We can also go to Revelation 14, one of the last books in the Bible, the last book in the Bible, not one of the last, the last book in the Bible, and we read there in uh, Revelation 14, the three angels' messages, of which the first one begins with, fear God and give glory to Him, and worship Him who made Okay, so there's the hour of his judgment which is coming. I'm skipping over a lot. But again, worship is mentioned there specifically because God made everything. And the author is sure to say, you know, everything above, below, even the fountains of the deep, which is a reference even to the flood. God is a truly, truly powerful God. So we can go through, let's, let's take a look at one more instance, which I, I really love this book of the Bible. Let's go to the book of Job. Job chapter 38. Most of us know the story of Job. If you don't, I would highly encourage you to read at least the first two, two chapters this afternoon. But if you haven't read the last part of the book of Job from 38 to the end, I'd also encourage you to do that if you haven't read it in, in a recent uh, time. So Job here is, is coming to the point. He has suffered all kinds of things, and he's getting to the point where he's saying, Lord, why? Why me? Why is this happening? He is not blaming God for it happening. He's not to that point yet. Notice that even at the end of the book of Job, does the, does the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does he say that Job sinned in anything that he did? No. Job was blameless in everything that he endured, even though he questioned God. I take this as a lesson for us. Sometimes we go through difficult things in our lives. It's not a sin to ask God a difficult question and to say, why is this happening? There is a difference between doubting whether God is there or simply wanting to understand more of who God is and, and about the conditions surrounding why you're going through that suffering. Of course, we are promised that when Jesus comes to take us home to heaven, we will have an opportunity to look back through our past and get all of those unresolved questions, those difficult questions which we may ask at times, resolved. And we will be able to understand in a clearer, in a better way, and understand how God was there, how much He loved us and cared for us, how much He intervened for us, and so on and so forth. But when you read the book of Job, you notice that Job is not aware of what is written in chapters 1 and 2, right? We as the readers, we are privy to information in the story that Job is not. And Job is crying out and asking if only God could just answer that and give him, I think Job would have felt very comforted to know that he was being upheld as an example in the heavenly courts as one who is faithful to God regardless. But Job starts crying out to God and saying, okay, are you going to answer me? Like, why 
am I actually going through this? And at the beginning of verse 38, we start to hear God's answer. By the way, God never answers Job, right? He never tells him what he wants to hear. But I think something even more profound happens. So he says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. Now I'm just going to pause there, but when God has to tell you, prepare yourself like a man, you don't even have to know the story. You know whatever's about to come is going to be to use a word that's very, uh, very, uh, how should I say, hip or, or currently used, it's going to be epic, right? When God tells you, prepare yourself like a man, you know what's coming is just going to be like, whoa, what is this? And that's exactly what happens because God says, oh, you want to question me to understand why? Let me just ask you a few questions and see if you can answer me. Now, I will question you and you shall answer. And I don't want to read through all three chapters here, but God just begins by what, I don't know how to describe it, it's kind of like a rapid fire machine gun, a barrage of questions, which Job is just like, just starts going like, I don't know the answer to that, I don't know the answer to that, I don't know the answer to that. He starts with the cosmos, like, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Upon what did I lay it as I placed it in there? Can you... Uh, what does it say? Uh, did you shut the seas around their borders, say that the waters will go this far, but no further? Like, did you design that? And he goes through on and on and on, talking about, do you even know when the mountain goats give birth to their young and how they do so, what their seasons are and stuff? And it's just like one thing after another, after another, so much so that Job, at the beginning of chapter 40, says, moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, sorry, uh, verse 3, then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, and I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. <laughs> In other words, I see that you see where you're coming from, but you're still not getting what I'm saying. In other words, brace yourself. There's more to come, right? He just told him, the word again isn't there, but I think it could be supplied in a very real way because it's like, I will question you and you shall answer me. And he starts talking about judgment. He even talks about Leviathan, this great beast. But I think something interesting happens. At first, I thought, man, isn't this a bit like mean of God? Don't you think? Like, that's our first impression. So Job has already said he's vile. I cover my mouth. Like, I really shouldn't have answered you anything. And God's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Prepare yourself like a man again. See if you can answer even more of the questions. It's like, you kind of feel like, hasn't God made his point? Why is he still going? But there's something interesting that happens because Job's response is one of acknowledging, okay, I have nothing to question God, but God is wanting to get more out of this, this um, interaction that he's having with Job merely than just saying, I'm smarter than you are. And he goes through and he asks him more questions, so much so that at the, at, uh, just to summarize, chapter 42, verse 5, is such a beautiful text. Job wasn't at all offended that God kept going. In fact, oh, well, let's start from verse 3, because it just says so, such beautiful words. It says, you asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. 
I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I'm so glad God went through chapter 40 and 41 because something changed in the mind of Job. It was not just God smarter than me and I'm, I'm ignorant of many things in life, therefore I shouldn't question God, but it was like, wow, God is really beautiful. Look at how much God knows. Look at how much He does. Shouldn't I appreciate that aspect about Him? And He says, I, I knew you just by hearing about you, but now, now my eyes have seen you. And that's a beautiful, beautiful concept, I think, to take from this. But what we do learn from chapters 38 all the way through 41 is that God has such power that even Job, who is going through so much and who is considered a very wise person in Scripture and a righteous person, says, I really should cover my mouth. Like, I can't speak to the things which God knows and which God does. So, at this point, you know, we can... I'm not going to go through any text, but I'm just, I'm trying to bring up the impression of how omnipotent God is. He can split the Red Sea. That's how much He has power over nature. Feed an entire nation from heaven with bread from heaven. How about not just feeding that nation, but watering that nation, giving them water, not just the nation, but all of the livestock that is associated with that nation in the middle of the wilderness from a rock? I mean, who does stuff like this? Who would even think of doing something like this? It's truly amazing. When persecution arises amongst God's people, He is able to deliver, whether it be from armies or whether it be from fire, as He did with the three Hebrews in Babylon. What about the mouth of lions? God is able to deliver in persecution. He can make something as dense and as heavy as iron float on water, and no, he's not, you know, changing the shape of it to make it like an iron ship, like we might say today. Yeah, humans can make iron. I'm talking about the axe head, which was lost. Yeah, I can make that float on top of the water for you. What about during times of famine? Can God provide food, such as he did for uh, that widow, the never-ending supply of flour and oil? I mean, it's just amazing. What about during times of pestilence and disease? Can God cure yeah, absolutely, and he does so much in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Perhaps, perhaps the greatest, you know, besides creation and besides his command over creation, I would say, and I think all of you would agree, that part of the reason why we do follow God is because of the hope that he brings us. And that hope is bound up essentially in one major thing, and that thing is the resurrection of the dead, right? That God even has power over death itself, and He can bring us back. Because after all, if we lived here and God said, all I can do is give you peace and joy and happiness in this life, but then you'll die, and there's nothing I can do about that, we'd kind of feel like something's not right. What's the point of it? The point of it is that there is something to come. There is more than just this life, and that is what we need to be preparing ourselves for. And it is clear, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, both before Jesus and after Jesus, that those who performed these miracles did so in the power of God, and that God has the power even to bring people from who are dead back to life. And what a huge, huge uh, hope this is for us. And there's so much more that we can talk about, and I'm not going to because we'll just be here forever and not get to the end of it. But here's a question I have for you, and it's not a question that is unique, but 
what I mean by that is it's not a question that we ourselves in this age are asking for the first time, and that is we might rightly pose the question, is there anything that is too hard for the Lord? And of course, the implicit answer to that, that we all want to just shout out is, no, of course not. God is omnipotent. He's powerful in everything. And we would be correct in doing so, but we would also be incorrect in doing so. And I mean that in two, that in two different senses, that the yes is a yes in a certain area and the no is a no in a certain area. And that's what the crucial message of this morning is about. So let's turn to the first passage in Scripture where we hear God By the way, both times that passage is uttered in Scripture, is there anything that is too hard for the Lord? It's God Himself who is speaking and saying, do you think this is difficult for me? And He's challenging people. So let's go to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32, this is one of the instances where we see that uh, God is going to speak these words and He's talking to Jeremiah. Now we know We know roughly what the book of Jeremiah is about. Babylon is coming. They're going to take Judah captive. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. But the promise is there that God will bring his people back from captivity and that God will establish Jerusalem once again and the walls will be rebuilt, the temple will be rebuilt, and so on and so forth. So let's start reading from verse 27. I'll read just 27 of verse 28. We're in Jeremiah chapter 32. It says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And of course, he goes on to Uh, describe how that's happening and the judgment that's happening to Judah in the very places where they did idol worship. This is where destruction will come upon them. But then he is closing out the chapter. Verse 42 says, for thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. And fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is desolate without man or beast. It has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them. Take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains and in the cities of the lowlands and in the cities of the south. I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. And both of these things are being held up to Jeremiah saying, this is not too difficult for me. I can both give away Judah and Jerusalem into the hands of the Chaldeans and I can also bring my people back Neither is too hard for me. How would we summarize this notion of God's power here? It's evidently not creation, which is what we talked about earlier in in this sermon. But how would you call God's guidance over history? Could we call it providence, His providential care? How much God is involved in making sure that 
nations have their opportunity to see how they would govern themselves, what kind of systems would be put in place, and when they go corrupt and when they go evil and when everyone is oppressed by them, as is often the case, and you can make this by going through many, many stories in the Old Testament, God says, okay, judgment needs to come. And this usually happens either by God sending a pestilence or a famine or something like that, but most often happens when He allows another nation to come and disrupt the evil and the the base immorality that is taking place until his people once again turn to him and often then God sends a deliverer. And you find this cycle happening back and forth all throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament on a more individual basis. And we will see a few examples of that as we head to the New Testament soon. But I would say that God is in supreme control. He is powerful when we talk about his providential care over history, God is aware that he will defeat evil. And he is working in such a way that he will bring this about. And there is no one who can, as much as Satan would like to, he cannot handcuff God behind his, you know, take his hands and handcuff him behind and say, no, 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 you cannot act here. You cannot do this. In fact, when we read the story of Job, Uh, we see that it's actually the other way around. It is always God who is limiting Satan as to what Satan can and cannot do, not the other way around where Satan is limiting God by what he can and cannot do, with an exception that we will find uh, as we go through this study. So let's go to the next passage that we see, uh, and this is at the beginning in the book of Genesis where so many of God's powerful works are recorded. Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, and we're going to read verse 14. Again here, God has come down, Jesus has come down with his angels to visit Abraham. And he tells him here, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah will have a son. He has just met there, Abraham has has shown the, the gift of hospitality. Uh, he has invited these travelers. He did not know who they were. Somewhere along in this conversation, he realizes this, these aren't just ordinary travelers. Uh, they know too much about me to be strangers. And he transitions from calling them strangers to this is the Lord that I'm speaking to. And he goes on later to have this dialogue where he bargains down Uh, God, in a sense, to spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and of the plain if there are all the way down to just 10 people righteous. And God says he would spare that. But right here, he's telling Sarah, hey, in about a year's time, I'm going to come and visit you. And at that time, Sarah's going to have a son. And Abraham is kind of (laughs) like, we're old. (laughs) Do you not see? You know, and Sarah's in the tent who overhears it and she laughs within herself. And uh, you know, God here kind of brings it out. Why are you laughing? Is anything too hard for the Lord? If God should desire to have, in this instance, I would say this is his supreme control over nature or biology, uh, similar to parting the Red Sea or his capacity to rule over diseases. If God wants to heal, he can heal. There is nothing that can stop him, um, except as we shall see very shortly. But in this sense, God said, okay, Sarah, your womb is going to be open. Next year, you're going to have a son. She says, well, I'm too old. And God says, so what? Like, do you think that is something which prevents me from from fulfilling my promise to you, which is that you would have a child and that your descendants would be as the stars of the heavens and as the sand on the sea? 
So this is another instance. So we see that God's power over nature and his providential care over history is undisputed in Scripture. But let's take a look at a few other passages now in the New Testament. Let's go to Mark chapter 6, the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. We've established that God can heal, right? There's nothing which prevents him. And now we're going to see what happened in Nazareth when Jesus taught and preached there. In verse 3, it starts saying, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Verse 5 and 6 are very eye-opening. Now, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So, is God able to heal all kinds of diseases? Absolutely. I mean, this happens so many times that many of the Bible writers they highlight certain stories. So you have blind Bartimaeus, you have the cripple who's by the pool of Bethesda. I mean, there are stories which are highlighted, but many times the Bible author said Jesus was preaching and teaching and just a multitude of people came and he healed all their diseases. They don't even have the time to expound on so-and-so was blind or lame or they were dumb or deaf or whatever the disease was. They just say a whole bunch of people came, they were all sick, and when they left, they weren't sick anymore. That's the power of God. But in this instant... It says he could do no mighty work there except for a few sick people who he was able to lay hands on and heal them. And it says he marveled because of their unbelief. Is it possible that God has given us something which can actually prevent him from doing that which he desires to do for us? And I believe this is the case, and we could make the case that our freedom, our choices have a part to play in God's plan. We will see this again as we turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Sorry, Luke 13. Verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. What is it that Jesus desires? He desires to gather them, to protect his people, to be as a hen is to her little chicks. So God wants to protect his people. Is he able to, like, does he have the power? Is he capable of doing so? Yes. But was he able to accomplish his purpose? No. Why not? So God can both want to do something, have the power to do something, and yet not be able to do it because we can thwart His plans for our lives. Let's go to one more passage in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 18. Beautiful passage. I think it's one of the best passages in Scripture if you want to teach someone about what the heart of God is actually like. It's just so vividly, there is so much mercy and grace in this chapter and justice as well at the same time. But to summarize, you know, God is giving a description here to Ezekiel saying, if someone has been wicked their entire lives, 
But at, towards the end, they choose to turn their lives around. They see the error of their ways. They turn and they start doing righteousness. They start trusting in God. They start living according to his principles, obviously with God's help. I'm not trying to make this as our humans do everything on their own kind of sermon. That is not true. But there is a role for humans to play in the process of salvation. We do have a choice, and we can say no. And that is what I'm trying to highlight. So he says here, if someone lives wickedly their entire lives, but at the end they should turn and they start doing righteousness, then all of their wickedness will be what? Forgotten. Won't be remembered. And they will live. And on the same sense, he says, if someone has done righteousness their whole life, but in the end they lose their way, they don't remember the old past, they go after wickedness and, and after selfishness, then all of their righteousness will be forgotten and they will have to drink the cup of death. And in the midst of this, he, he, he says this twice, both in verse 23 and 32. It's easy to remember because it's 2, 3, and 3, 2. At least that's how I remember it. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Well, if, if you were to say God's desire, is God's desire that people should be destroyed? and die, or God's desire that people should live? To live. That's what his, can he accomplish that? Is he capable of it? Yes. So why is he thwarted so many times? Because people as individuals choose not to allow God to have that power in their lives. Again, he repeats in verse 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God, therefore turn and live. So this notion that God's power over the natural, His providential care, this is undisputed. He is omnipotent in these areas. But when it comes to the aspect of human freedom, God Himself has self-limited Himself. He created something which is both beautiful and dangerous at the same time. Why is it beautiful? Because freedom gives meaning to so many of the things which we do. For example, Love is a good way of displaying this, but it's not exclusively love. It can be any act of service, which is done for anyone. Do you do special things for your kids, for your parents, for your spouse, for your friend, because you have to? Hey, can you imagine, I come home and I say, hi, honey, I got these flowers for you, but I only got them because I had to. You think that's gonna go well for me? Probably not. It's never happened. But I get the flowers, I give them to her, I do something special, I help out here, I help out there. She helps me here. Why? Because we love each other and it's meaningful and it's special because I know she didn't have to do that, because I didn't have to do that, because you don't have to do that. It's why when you do that, it makes it very beautiful. But it's also dangerous because you can say no and you can not do things that you should be doing or do things that you shouldn't be doing and it can take you away from God. So imagine what it's like from God's perspective. I, I, I need to give them this freedom because otherwise there's no worthwhile relationship here. But if I give it to them, I realize that they can say no to me and leave me. These are mutually exclusive concepts. To say that God can somehow force human free will and to say that he's love at the same time, it doesn't correspond. Just like if I was going to try and to describe to you a person I know who is an honest person who lies, right? 
or, or vice versa, a person who's a liar who's honest. It's like, well, which one is it? You, you can't be honest and a liar. Either you're a liar or you're honest. It doesn't mean that honest people don't make mistakes at times. God can forgive, but there is a difference. You, you cannot be both honest and telling a lie at the same time. You can't be free and forced at the same time. This is, these are mutually exclusive concepts. So now I want to go to a few other stories in the Bible before I make my main point here. And the first one is the story of Noah and the antediluvian world. I've, I've mentioned this concept many times and I'm gonna mention it many times more. So if you've heard me say it before, it's okay, it's good to be reminded, but so many of us, I think, especially if we've been in the church for a long time, we've read, we've read through so many of the stories of the Bible that they almost become, it's bad to use this word, but boring. Boring is, is the wrong word, but maybe it's like too common. We're aware of it. If you want to make the Bible exciting again, there is one tip that I would recommend to you, and that's put yourself in the story. Start asking yourself the questions, what would I have done if I was person A or person B? You don't even have to put yourself in as the main character of the story. Maybe put yourself in as a bystander. I mean, think about it. You're there, part of the army of Saul, and no one wants to go out and fight Goliath, and then this kid walks up and says, I'll do it. How would you feel? Kind of brings a new, different dimension to the story. What would you, would you laugh? Would you spread rumors? Hey, guys, you know, there's this kid that wants to take on this giant. What would you say? Or would you say, oh, okay, would you be brave enough to say, well, I'll come with you? Or maybe you wouldn't. It tells you a lot about yourself. It tells you a lot about the dynamics of what other people in the story would have been thinking because they were human beings just like you are. No doubt some of the things you think of when you place yourself in the story is no doubtedly what someone else was thinking who was also there at the same time. So I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of Noah. How long did he preach? 120 years and he preached righteousness, we are told. So, imagine God tells you, build an ark, the world is gonna be destroyed, everything, and the only place that is safe is this ark. So Noah begins, he begins building and he begins preaching. Who does Noah save at the end of the 120 years? The same people he probably would have saved at the beginning of the 120 years, right? He, his wife, his sons, and their wives. Eight people, and all the animals, of course, that went on the ark. But besides that, he had zero conversions. Do we think, when we read that story, that Noah's only family was his three sons and daughters-in-law? Was he kind of like, the only one for generations that only had one child, one child, one child, one child? Do you think he maybe had some uncles, some aunties, some cousins, nieces and nephews perhaps? How would you plead with someone if you knew there's only a short time left? What would you say? I'm pretty sure Noah tried everything he could think of in his praying and in his preaching I'm sure he would have tried to reason with his family. And to, to make things worse, the fact that he's doing what God wants him to do is already limiting his time, right? Because as the ark is being built, he can keep saying, well, I have time, right? I have time. I can still go and visit them. I, I, what do you think it must have been like when that 
last nail was hammered in, when that last, you know, pitch was, was put on the outside, when the boat was finally done, but I, I probably don't have that much time left. What do you think he must have thought of when he saw all the animals come in? Then he probably thought, I really don't have much time left. How desperate do you think he would have been? I need to go revisit that uncle. I need to try and persuade my niece that the course of direction of her life that she's taking is not what is best for her. I can't force them, but I need to try and plead. Can you imagine how frustrating it must have been for Noah? And at the end of all of it, he goes in and the door is shut and nothing happens. And and people, as he preached, and especially after he went in the ark, the spirit of prophecy tells us, what did they do? They laughed at him, right? Let's take a look at another story. What about the story of Lot? Let's go to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. This, this has to be one of the saddest texts. I know I keep saying that, but there are so many. But I've always read this text, even when I was probably a teenager, and I thought it's a scary, sad text Lot there, the angels come, they tell him what's about to happen, you need to get out of the city, the city is gonna be destroyed, not next week, not next month, tonight, you have literally hours. He said, can I please go and warn my family? Sure, go and warn your family, but hurry. And he goes and he talks to his daughters and his his sons-in-laws. It says there in verse 14, and Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters, and he said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be what? Joking. I'm trying to put myself in that story. I mean, the the gravity of the situation, you're going to die. I'm offering you a way of escape and you're laughing at me. It must have been extremely, extremely frustrating to Lot as it was to Noah when people don't want to use that gift which God has given them in the positive way to say, you know what, you're right. I will allow God to work in my life. I want to do what's right. Not because it's just the right thing to do, but because I know I should. I want to read to you a few quotes here from the spirit of prophecy in what she says or how she actually describes God being powerless to do things. And I'm not intending intentionally to step on anyone's toes, but I still have to preach what is true. So this first one comes from Councils on Diets and Food, page 426. And she describes here, those who are in the habit of using tea, coffee, tobacco, opium, or spiritus liquors cannot worship God when they are deprived of the accustomed indulgence. So in other words, she's describing people who are dependent upon some kind of substance, whatever it is, she gives here a range of substances that if they aren't on those substances, they can't come and worship God. And she continues and she says, let them while deprived of these stimulants engage in the worship of God. And notice this next phrase, and divine grace would be powerless to animate, enliven, or spiritualize their prayers or their testimonies. God can't do it. The choices have made them what they are and God can help 
take those substances away and over time build up, you know, so that you are functioning without those substances, but you can't just decide, well, I'm going to take these substances out, come and feel as though God can somehow impart grace. She says God is powerless to do this. Throughout all Scripture, this one comes from a Review and Herald article, throughout all Scripture, in both Old and New Testaments, Christ Himself speaks, for He is the Word of God, and He who communicates His Word is only the instrument of His power. There must be cooperation of the divine with the human, or the ministry of the Word will be powerless. The same word. There must be cooperation of the divine with the human, otherwise the ministry... In other words, you can read the texts... But if you won't say, you're right, I need to change, then God is powerless. Someone can read it and their life can be changed, transformed. They can feel the power of God and someone can read it and say, I don't like what's in there and I'm not going to follow it. What more can God do? I want to read one more quote before I get to a story here. And this one really summarizes our day and age right now. It says, the prevailing spirit of our time is one of infidelity and apostasy, a spirit of avowed illumination because of a knowledge of truth, but in reality of the blindness presumption. Human theories are exalted and placed where God and his law should be. Satan tempts men and women to disobey with the promise that in disobedience they will find liberty and freedom that will make them as gods. That sentence is hugely packed, and that is so true. I feel like everywhere I turn my eye, it's all about pursuing sin to make you free. There is seen a spirit of opposition to the plain Word of God, of idolatrous exaltation of human wisdom above divine revelation. Men have allowed their minds to become so darkened and confused by conformity to worldly customs and worldly influences that they seem to have lost all power to discriminate between light and darkness, truth and error. So far, they have departed from the right way that they hold the opinions of a few philosophers, so-called, to be more trustworthy than the truths of the Bible. Note this next sentence very, very carefully. The entreaties and the promises of God's Word, its threatenings against disobedience and idolatry, all are powerless to melt their hearts. A faith such as actuated Paul, Peter, and John, they regard as old-fashioned, mystical, and unworthy of the intelligence of modern thinkers. This is Review and Herald, November 6, 1913. So I want to share with you a little bit of what happened to me about six months ago when I became a father. And I'm not intending to go into too many details for obvious reasons, but everyone's birth story is different, and I'm not trying to get into this dialogue of, well, mine was worse, or mine was better, or wow, or the comparison is irrelevant. What is relevant is that this is the first time we were going through this, and you can hear about other people, talk about it all you want, but when you go through it yourself, that's when you really learn something. And so, we had complications during the birth process. We had a great medical team, and I, I just want to put a shout out there to anyone who's in the medical, so I'm so grateful for modern medicine. You know, it, if we went back a few centuries and, and throughout millennia, so many women and children died during the process of childbirth. I am grateful that we have many ways. We may not have it all figured out, but we know a lot more today than we did 
say, 500 years ago. And so many more lives have been preserved because of this. But there was a time, you know, when you, when you watch your he- baby's heartbeat, you know, it's supposed to be a time of absolute joy. We, we were driving to the hospital, it was a Sabbath morning. Uh, some of you may have been here when you heard the announcement that I wasn't going to be here to do my duties. I think I was giving announcements at that time because I was going to the hospital. And we're going to the hospital and we're excited because we, we not, we're not, you know, we're not trying to say this is going to be a walk in the park. It's going to be hard, but we get to meet the baby, which we haven't met yet. It's just been in the, the stomach, as it were, in the womb. And uh, we get to the hospital and, and things start going okay at a little bit and then things start going worse and worse and worse. And the baby's heartbeat should be around 120 beats per minute. And during contractions, it may lessen a little bit, but come back up again. Uh, but slowly we saw that at the beginning, the baby's heartbeat would slow down to 90, then down to 80, then down to 70, then down to 60. And sometimes it was taking, you know, a few minutes for it to go from after the contraction was over for the, for the heartbeat to raise back up to 120. And this isn't just one or two times. This is for a few hours. And when you see the nurses kind of looking, you see the doctor kind of looking, you kind of start thinking to yourself, like, what is happening? <laughs> this isn't what we wanted to happen. Of course not. And there was a moment where it didn't stay too long in my mind, but there was a moment when I thought, it's, ve- it's possible, even though I didn't think there was a l- huge opportunity yet uh, of, of how it was going to go, because I was being kept up to date by the doctors and the nurses and saying, what we'll do if if things keep continue progressing and so on. So I knew there were still options there, but I thought this moment of absolute joy could be turned into absolute sorrow. And this has happened to many people where you lose one or you lose both in the process, how horrible that must feel. But the worst part is that there's nothing you can do about it right? You've all had this experience. Maybe, maybe not in birth. Some of, you, some of you are too young, but anyone who knows what true love is, who can, who can comprehend it, who can experience it, knows what losing that can be like. You know what it's like. Is it, is it a parent? Is it a grandparent? An uncle, and auntie? Is it cancer? Is it heart disease? Is it that their mental capacity is going and the person who is physically able isn't the person you grew up with? And there's nothing you can do, and you have to wait and watch and watch them waste away. It's, it's not a comfortable experience to watch those you love go through pain and suffering. It's like, give it to me. Let me go through it. Don't let me watch. And particularly, don't let me watch if there's nothing I can't do about it, right? And particularly as a guy. Like, guys like to fix things. You give us a problem we'll at least talk, even if we don't know right away, we can call someone, we can talk to someone, you can, ex- you can explain it, okay, I can watch a YouTube video, how to change something, and then I can change it and I can fix it. We like to fix things, to make things functional. It's incredibly hard for us to just be there and not be able to do anything. And it was at that moment, I had this thought that came into my mind, kind of like, are you here, God? And wouldn't it be nice to be God? Wouldn't it be nice to be God? I mean, this feeling which I'm having, this moment which I'm having right now, I mean, God could make the heartbeat go up to 120. He could spin that baby around. He could, he could do a number. I'm not even asking for like a glorious light to kind of emanate from the womb, you know. Just make it seem as natural as possible, but fix it. Like if I was God and I could do that, 
Wouldn't it be nice to be God? To not have that feeling of utter powerlessness and frustration and sorrow of watching others go pain and almost immediately, like a a spiritual lightning bolt, if there is such a thing, this concept came into my mind and I said, oh, God feels like this every day. And worse than that, I know I've been guilty of giving God this feeling. I remember when everything, when everything was over and it was probably about three in the morning, I don't know, I wasn't particularly looking and if I did, I probably don't remember, but it was very early morning, late night, however you want to define it. My wife was there in the bed, she was asleep. The baby was asleep in her little basket in the room, they were outside, <laughs> the baby was outside, everything was healthy, things were looking up. And the nurses just left, we turned off the lights in the room and they were asleep, I was about to go to sleep and I just started bawling out crying. I, I couldn't, couldn't help myself, partly because I was thankful that I didn't lose one or either of them. I was just so grateful that God came through and that they were healthy and yeah, it's really great being a dad, <laughs> especially at the six month stage, it's, it's super nice. But also because I was sorry, I was sorry that I, I, I don't think I doubted God, but I was sorry that I questioned God, kind of like Job, you know, like I'm legitimately asking a good question, I don't think it's bad to do that, but kind of that moment where I should have kept my mouth shut. Uh, I didn't say anything out verbally, but I, sh I was sorry that I even thought of that, but I was crying because I was praying, Lord, never help me forget this feeling, and I'm sorry for all the times that I've caused you to have this feeling of God wanting to do something for me, God wanting to do something through me, but not being able to, not because He doesn't want to, not because He doesn't have the power to, but because I am not willing. And yet this is the choice that each of us must face and what must it be like to be in a, in a world where there are seven billion people roughly and where people daily, multiple times, in the billions are saying no to God, how? And yet He loves us still, He's merciful with us, He's patient with us. I mean, how patient is that? Can you quantify it? It's kind of like a rhetorical question, you know, like, is anything too hard for the Lord? No, or can you quantify it? No, it's just immeasurable. But the idea is, will we allow ourselves to say, God, I want your will to be done in my life, which means, and I'm so glad God has made it simple, it means whatever it is that we're facing, I'm not gonna go to specifics, you all know it's usually one of two things. Sometimes it's both, and that's a good thing. It's usually God wants us to stop doing something we're doing and start doing something we should be doing. That's it. All of sin can be summarized like that. Sin is selfishness. It's looking out for our own interests. But God is saying, you know, uh, let me just draw an analogy to the fact that Jesus, when he came, he taught the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Did you know that at that time they had something which was called the silver rule, which is 
in the negative. Don't do unto others what you would not want them to do to you. But do you see how minimal that is? Basically, don't, don't be pesky to other people because you don't like it when people are pesky to you. Don't, don't. But Jesus is saying, that's a good starting spot, but I expect much more. I want, I want it in the positive. You ought to be doing things for others. So sin works in both. For him to know to do good and not to do it to him, it is sin. There is a both and. It's not just that we commit evil. It can be a failure to do good. And all of sin is summarized like this. And God's plan for us is purely that, that we would move away from doing those things which are harmful for us and that we would move to doing things which are beneficial for us and for those around us, no matter how it may seem. And oftentimes, I mean, we can just take a look at Noah and Lot. They were laughed at. They were laughed at at the point of, of destruction, I wonder to myself, if you feel as though you have been stubbornly saying no to God, I pose this question to you to consider what would it take? What would that appeal look like that would reach your heart and that would say, stop doing or start doing whatever it may be? What more can God do? Our scripture reading was Isaiah 5. Jesus makes reference to this again in the Gospels when he talks about the parable of the vineyard. He says, everything that could be done for the vine was done for it. You judge. God is actually posing us the question, is there anything more I can do? Is there anything more I can say? He even tells them in the New Testament, even if someone was raised from the dead, you wouldn't believe. And you said, no, 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 but we'd believe. Yeah, what about Lazarus? <laughs> what about the, the, the daughter of, uh, what was his name? Jairus' daughter. I mean, people die. He raises them from the dead. Oh, no, but they must not have really been dead in the first. I mean, there's always a way to doubt something. What would it take? If, if you were on the precipice of utter destruction, what would that appeal look like? When God has tried pleading, interceding, being kind, giving you perhaps stern rebukes, warning you of the destruction that's going to come, I mean, both sides, like, like God is essentially bringing it, I, I believe, in Isaiah chapter 5, and also in the, the retelling of it in the New Testament, God is giving us the option, judge me. Have I been unfair to anyone? Have I not tried every single possible angle that is there to try and convince them that they ought to turn their lives around? I don't want them to die. I don't have any pleasure in it, but I can't force them to do that which they don't want to do. And yet God, and so God, as you say, to a great degree, must feel utterly powerless in the lives of many individuals. And my plea to you this morning is, let's not be part of that group. Let's be part of the group that says, I will, Lord. If this is what you're asking me to do, I will. Not, I will not. And we're going to back that up, not just intellectually or, or making a, making a, a uh, mental estate to, yeah, 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 I want to follow you, God. But then we go out in our practice and we act as though we've never made that decision. No, no, no. We need to back it up with our actions. Again, praying to God, asking for his strength. He needs to be with us, in us, working through us. It's all Him empowering us, but we have to make the choice. We must cooperate. God cannot do that part for us. He can do other things for us, but He can't do that part for us. He can remove the enemies that may stand in front of us. He can remove the stumbling blocks. But when it comes to temptation, we must decide, Lord, in your strength, I'm choosing not to go for the temptation. I need to go do 
something else. And that's my plea. I, I think I always knew this, that human freedom was so valuable, but I never understood it as much as that morning in the hospital room when I was there and when I was saying, Lord, please forgive me for all the times because it's such, a, it's such an uncomfortable experience. We abhor it. We hate it. We don't want it. And I'm sure God doesn't either. And yet he has to face it every single day. Let's be part of that group that instead of giving him that uncomfortable feeling, he can say, I can smile upon those. They're trying. They're doing their best. I'm working with them. They make it all worth it, that my death wasn't in vain. Let's be part of that group. And that is what I want to challenge you with this morning.